At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. W.A.B.E. in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. In his stand-up work, comedian Dimitri Martin is known for his stream-of-consciousness humor, going from one wacky thought to another totally unrelated idea. Think improper snorkeling and dogs wearing sweaters. Ahead of his upcoming shows at the Georgia Theater in Athens, Dimitri Martin joins me in conversation later this hour. Plus, our series Speaking of Art today features Atlanta multimedia artist David Batterman. First, Michelangelo, Da Vinci, and Raphael are the artists whose works form the basis of 15th-century Florentine art. Chicago-born artist Thelonious Stokes was inspired by these brilliant painters and other old masters while studying at the prestigious Florence Academy of Art in Italy. Stokes reconceptualizes Judeo-Christian themes in the style of European Renaissance art with black figures as subjects in his show To the Last Page, presented by United Talent Agency here in Atlanta at Pullman Yards. The artist joins me now from Florence via Zoom. Thelonious Stokes, welcome to City Lights. Thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) How about that opening? Well, how about your spectacular art and quite an extraordinary achievement. You are the first African-American artist to graduate from the Florence Academy What's it like to have that honor? You know, being here in Florence, such a popular Eurocentric, you know, landmark. Sure, I can say it was an honor, but uh, ultimately it feels like a step in the right direction. Just painting and around so many different cultures, also being in Florence, be it a major tourist attraction, major city. I felt like I was like uh, basically literally walking in a potential prayer. Oh, wow. Italy in general, this Christian country, right? uh, It was a culture shock when I landed here. It still feels like that today. What drew you to study there? 
you know, I was always a huge Da Vinci fan, right? And uh, based in Chicago initially, the only access I had to art was the Art Institute of Chicago, right? The major museum. That's not a bad museum if you can only have one. <laughs> no, absolutely. I, I feel quite blessed to have that museum, have access to that museum every day. And um, there was there's even a, a portrait of Alessandro Medici. Uh, he was a Duke of Florence, I believe. And passing by that portrait in Chicago and being unaware that one day I will be in the city that this man ruled, you know, it's, it feels like a it feels like a, a page out of a, a history book, <laughs> to be honest with you. Oh, it, you must have been pinching yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm also from Chicago. Uh-oh. I read, uh-oh, uh -oh. White Sox. You must yep. be a White Sox fan. You already know us. As was my husband. <laughs> oh, awesome. oh, yeah. My that's husband awesome. My husband grew up on the South Side, mm -hmm. also White Sox. Yep. I grew up on the much less intellectual North Side. Oh, you're a Cubs fan. <laughs> well, living yeah. in Atlanta all these years, we're now Braves fans, so it's it's neutral mm -hmm. territory. But I read that jazz also shaped your upbringing and your love for art, and I wondered if your namesake is the great pianist. Absolutely. My parents are both musicians, and yes, I'm named after Thelonious Monk. Yeah, you know, music is a, a fundamental part of my practice, be it I listen to jazz daily, like as I paint. It, it might be, sure, my, the name the name does, you know, have heavy, it hits heavy in the jazz community. And uh, yeah, that absolutely comes from my parents. My mom was a um, a jazz singer. Oh. My father being a kind of a rock star to an extent, play, being able to play all instruments. So I was constantly surrounded around jazz music and just... Uh, culture, the richness of that Chicago kind of bluesy culture, right? That's for sure part of my life. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Rich indeed. And I also read that your Baptist church background shapes much of your artwork. How is that influence revealed in the paintings on view in this exhibition? It's a great question. I feel like Living in Florence for, what, five years now, and it being a Roman Catholic, an Orthodox Christian community, to, per se, right? Sure, there are specific sects and things of that nature, be it Rome, maybe city to city. But um, just reflecting on my childhood growing up in the church and just seeing this interesting parallel from rich Renaissance and Baroque, even 19th century European artwork, in relation to Christianity and seeing kind of seeing myself or wanting to see myself per se in these paintings. So just sponging as much information technically on an abstract basis, just how I move, how I walk, things I eat, but how those are fused with my early childhood in Chicago, right? This Baptist, South Side, very black upbringing. And then you just drop me in Italy, put a paintbrush in my hand. That's basically what you see on those walls. Well, historically, artistic depictions of Jesus, his apostles, and other biblical figures have been whitewashed. Why is it important 
to recreate them as black figures. You said the term whitewash. Something that I have spoken on in my work uh, in the past was, I've, I've used the term blackwashing in my work. I don't necessarily like the, the concept of, of fighting fire with fire, but, you know, I was just in Ghana, right? And I was seeing images of Jesus Christ that were Germanic in, in nature, right? European in just appearance. And it, it did something to me because it was my first time- In, in Ghana? Af in Africa, yes, in Ghana. So I was like, okay, cool. I think that I'm making the work that must be created, uh, be it for the South side of Chicago or the, con or the continent of Africa as a whole. Um, I ultimately want to redistribute these images globally. Thelonious, may I add, if it's not presumptuous, for us collectively as well. Absolutely. I mean, I guess it never occurred to the European masters of the Renaissance that any depictions of Old or New Testament figures could be anything but white. But we know that could not have been how they looked. And even if it were, isn't it the role of the artist to point out what meaning that couldn't have for the viewer? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I feel a duty, a responsibility to uh, produce these images. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with artist Thelonious Stokes. Do you feel any sense of irony painting biblical scenes with black figures in a country that was once ruled by the fascist party and has a pretty strong right-wing representation today. And I actually feel it's, it's a protest. It's something that I actively want to do, go into the source of means of oppression to um, recharge and kind of an original concept that was potentially taken, inspired by, you know, the reason why I'm I, you know, I look at certain, there's multiple depictions of Black Christ throughout Italy. You see it popping up here and there all the time. And it's very striking when you see this because you're like, uh, okay, kind of random, kind of thrown off. And it feels, it's, it, it, has a, it's, it has a sense of like, I've been, I haven't been shown this. I haven't been told about this. What is this? Is this a secret? Am I supposed to be seeing this? And seeing some of these Black Christ and Black Madonnas throughout Europe, it almost, for me, was a reaffirmation or affirmation per se, like a sign activating the um, kind of ultimate direction of my work. It told me, yes, these images need to be produced. Uh, I even intend on purchasing large billboards throughout Accra. That's kind of a newer social performance that I want to do. And just, you know, slap dab in the middle of Africa, place these images around there so people can see them. I read that you view your works as performances as much as oil paintings, and I was hoping you'd elaborate. Sure. It's kind of directly correlated when we spoke about that level of protest that's involved in the work. I uh, 
sometimes say like if I was a you know a black man during World War II or if I was an artist or poet I would travel directly to you know Nazi occupied Germany to write poems right I feel like these sources of protest this ultimate level of activation there needs to be a direct conversation with let's say a regime or a movement going even to Ghana with a lot of my friends from Chicago felt like a movement and showing you know Ghanaian folks and just people of the continent some of my paintings they were blown away and that feeling that I was able to receive back was just like a total confirmation that my practice is um it's it's more than painting so sure you can call it a performance we can call it a, a form of activism it has multiple different layers, but ultimately, I think it's just, you know, a young man doing his thing. <laughs> oh. I'm just joking. I'm joking. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Doing some great things. I appreciate that. Thank you. On your Instagram, there's a painting of yours of a black man in blackface makeup and red lips. Yes. And the caption reads, I believe a good picture is something one must both love and despise. Would you unpack that meaning for us? Sure. So that picture is an image I recently finished, almost as like an introduction to a newer collection I want to do. Now, knowing that there's a, you know, a kind of a hard right regime in Italy. So I want to start to activate very specific race-related images right throughout this year and that being a self-portrait there'll be a series of those what I meant by the quote was I believe a good painting requires emotion if a painting makes you feel any type of way it's it's potentially a successful painting be it you must feel something I feel like a failed painting is something you feel nothing from so it doesn't matter if you dislike the painting, if you like the painting, if you feel something from that work, that work is a success. And that level of confrontation that went into that self-portrait, I put blackface on myself. And I was thinking about this, this industry that, that feeds on black mockery, black death, and the, the, just the degeneration of blackness in itself to the point of entertainment and um, decay, right? And I wanted to load that really stuff, all of that information into a single portrait of myself with blackface on, smiling, confronting the viewer, but almost about to cry in that painting. It's almost like I'm being forced to smile. Yeah. I would think that must have been very emotional of you to depict, to self-depict at that. Absolutely. And there's this specific correlations that I draw between colonial rule, the parallel of Black oppression, the parallel of religion, and further on, the redistribution of Black Christ globally. And I just feel like that's all on the same balance beam, right? And it's all loaded and packed into my practice. So that self-portrait is almost, it's literally hanging right now in the studio next to a, a newer depiction of Christ, right? These paintings are next to each other. Something I haven't ever seen in my life. 
but I can now because I'm able to kind of like pull out almost as if it was like a clown with those ribbons, all of the loaded traumas and glories and heartbreaks and victories that are loaded in that, you know, that individual and collective like black body, right? I just want to like, just, just spill it all out, spill it all out. We often hear the Italian Renaissance described as the golden age of art. Florence itself was a center for fine gold jewelry, lots of jewelry trade. Would you talk about the gems in your paintings, such as the gold chains and earrings and I wondered how that iconography is layered into your work. Absolutely. The reason behind the gold is to enhance the level of glory that sits on the Black body, right? When gold on the surface of just Black skin is just, it's just this, it's an ancient conversation. It's not a new conversation in any way, and it still happens today. You know, I wore jewelry myself. There were kings that wore jewelry. There were, you know, chiefs that wore jewelry. And I've noticed specifically within the European aspect of Christianity, the virgin is usually depicted in a more humble way with, you know, very, to an extent, plain clothing. And I just, that wasn't really natural for me. I felt like I had to naturally place this queen of the savior, this mother, right, of the land in the most decadent possible attire because I feel like that's, that's, she owns it, it's her. They're fruits of, 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 her, of her being, of her essence. And it just came naturally to me to start to depict gold and things of that nature. Very, I'm, I'm, I'm really just starting to apply this precious soft metal and jewel within some of the work, specifically on depictions of the Virgin Mary and uh, things of that nature. But it's something you'll for sure see come out of me a lot more in the future, is this level of decadence that I want to associate with Blackness. Artist Thelonious Stokes, his exhibition to the last page is on view at United Talent Agency's Pullman Yard's pop-up show from January 27th through February 25th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll listen back to my conversation with the comedian Dimitri Martin ahead of his upcoming shows in Athens at the Georgia Theater. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. 
jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio, and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Comedian Dimitri Martin is known for his stream-of-consciousness humor. In a stand-up routine, he can go from one funny thought to another totally unrelated idea while piecing jokes together seamlessly. You might recognize his voice from the character of Ice Bear and Isaac, the Cartoon Network animated series, We Bear Bears. Dimitri also had his own Comedy Central program, Important Things with Dimitri Martin, for two seasons. He'll perform at the Georgia Theater in Athens on February 11th. And when we spoke last July... Martin explained how he developed his signature comedy style. Well, I've been doing it a while now. By now, you know, I'm about 25 years in, but it was about, I don't know, maybe two years into it, so 22, 23 years ago. I started with one-liners, and that is, I guess you could say, my bread and butter. I like to write these short jokes and tell them, and, and it's usually, that's, that's most of the show. Sometimes I'll tell a story here or there. But really, it's built built on those jokes. In around 2002, I tried, and I guess I succeeded. I, I, I set out to make my first one-person show that was more narrative. You could say more like a theater show, perhaps. You know, but it was it was presentational. It was me really just telling jokes and some stories. But I tried to give it a shape. And for that show, it was around then that I thought it would be cool if I could present the jokes, you know, in different ways. And one of the ways I thought I could do it was to accompany the jokes with some music. And that led me to buying a guitar and starting to play guitar. So I started pretty late with guitar. I was 29, I think, at the time. But it worked. And so I I sort of kept it in the act. And when I do a headlining show on the road, which can sometimes be up to 90 minutes, it's nice to break up the show a little bit. And one way I can do it is to do some of the jokes with the guitar. Yeah, I read an interview with you, I think, where you said you enjoyed the musical element because you think it adds production value for people attending the show. That's that's very considerate of an audience. Well, yeah, I I think it's important to remember myself as a comedy fan first and someone who likes to see live shows, music, comedy. I haven't seen theater in a while, but I have enjoyed seeing live theater as well. You know, any performer, I think it's important to think about the other side of it. And now that I'm a little bit older and I have a couple kids, I also think about people getting a babysitter and finding parking and what they had to pay. So I'm thinking, all right, how can I give them at least what they expected and a little bit more. So with what I'm able to do, I try to give as much as I can in the show. Mm. It comes through. Your comedy bounces around from improper snorkeling to 
Dogs wearing sweaters. That was one of my favorites. Thanks. Why do you avoid political issues in your stand-up? This is a question I've asked myself, and I'd say more so in the last, whatever you want to call it, five, six years, seven, eight years, but I, I feel probably like a lot of people, the intensification of the world that we live in, certainly along political lines. Years ago, I had an opportunity to be part of The Daily Show when Jon Stewart was the host. I remember. Yes, and so when they came to me, they said, hey, we think you might fit into the show. And I remember at that time saying, you know, I really appreciate it, but I think you got the wrong guy. I did. I don't really have any political material or anything. And they said, no, 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 I think there's maybe a different kind of a segment you can do. Let's see what you can come up with and pitch it to us, and we'll see if it fits in the show. What I came up with was sort of this youth correspondent, which was pretty apolitical. I'd say about politics and my comedy, the same thing I would say about doing dirty stuff. I've tried over the years. There have been times where I have tried bits that were dirty or more political. And what I found was the audience, at least my crowd, they were, they didn't want it. They were like, no, not from you. Especially the dirty stuff. I thought, oh, that's a really well-structured joke. Okay, it's dirty, but I think it's a good joke. And then it would just be like a weird speed bump in the show. And the other thing I'd say is, as strong as my convictions are about my personal political views, I, I just, I don't know why, but I can't convert it into funny stuff, really. And then, this is a very long answer. You can tell I've, I've wrestled with but But the other part of it is, it starts from a very utilitarian place, which is, if I'm going to spend time on the jokes, if I can make them as generic as possible, then they have a longer shelf life. So if I had a good joke about George Bush or something, that's gone. I've seen lots of friends have material that just vanishes, and I'm such a nerd about it. You know, dogs and sweaters, that seems like that would have a longer shelf life. <laughs> that's um, eternal. Yeah, potentially. I mean, as long as, you know, I know comedy kind of doesn't age that well, but at least maybe I get a longer run out of it. But really, the short answer is I just haven't really found a way to be funny coming out of this person on those topics. Interesting. This is your first tour in, what, four years? three years since the pandemic, mm -hmm. during that time of isolation, what inspired your new material? Well, I'm a big daydreamer, and I wrestle with that too because I don't know how much of it's escapism and how much of it's just working on what I really have to offer and sort of showing up for work each day, even if it's sort of ridiculous that I'm like taking a bath with a notebook and just seeing like what pops into my head. So that time at home that I had, as scary as it was for all of us, and for me and my wife with two young kids, you know, we had that variable to deal with. I was surprised that I had a pretty long run where I didn't miss performing or think about comedy that much or really do it. I don't know what I was doing, but it was probably eight or nine months before I started thinking, hey, I should maybe do something here. But I think for better or worse, because I am, I believe, one of the most irrelevant comics, and I don't mean that in a bad way, I just think I'm sort of to the side. Not that much changed once I started to get back to writing because it was sort of the same process, which was, for lack of a better term, I'd say just daydreaming. You know, I draw, 
play a little bit of music. And I have, this is probably more information than anybody would want to know, but I, I have a few old typewriters. Oh, you're in good company. Tom Hanks, I mean, that's right. he collects typewriters. He wrote that book about a typewriter. I got some of those older mechanical ones, which, you know, you can get on Etsy or eBay or wherever. And what I found was it really helped me because it freed me from my computer and from the various screens that have invaded our lives. If I want to write a page of jokes, sometimes I can just take a piece of paper and put it in the typewriter and I write jokes. I type jokes and I put the date and then I just write a page of, I type a page of jokes. And when it's done, then I have a page of jokes and I put it in a binder. Do you make copies? I do, but I don't do it often enough. I I should be doing it more because a lot of those pages of jokes only exist there in that binder. It's It's a very imperfect system that I have. Sometimes I photograph the page with my phone. So I've got, I've sort of brought it into the digital world. You've got backup. I've got. I have backup. I should now. Now, as you're saying this, I'm panicking a little bit because I'm thinking, when did I do that <laughs> last? But not that it's all gold. I mean, it wouldn't be that great a loss. But there are some good ones in there. Those are the ones that usually end up working on stage. You mentioned John Stewart and the Comedy Central days. How did important things with Dimitri Martin propel your career? Well, I joke now that, you know, it had its short life there and that to Comedy Central, I think it turned out just to be things with Dimitri Martin. But I I tried to trick him and say it was important. But I don't know. I think what helped me insofar as what that show did was as someone who never did sketch comedy, I didn't study acting and I had no acting training or anything. Not that I was doing any sort of involved acting for my Comedy Central sketch show. Let's be clear about that. But still, I I started as a stand-up comedian who writes his jokes and tells them, and pretty straightforward, and not even really a storyteller. They're jokes. It's just a guy who has some jokes. When I got the opportunity to do that show, I thought, hey, here's a chance to try to get my sensibility to work in a different form. And so I, I don't know how much that propelled my career, but creatively, it was it was that step forward for me. Eventually, I did get to make a film. And I think having done those scenes and having written them, it was really helpful because the sketches were almost like little short films in that show. Yeah, one of the sketches was the men's passive-aggressive 800-meter race. <laughs> yeah. That was very funny. Thanks. Fellow comedians, John Mulaney, and mm-hmm. H. John Benjamin were part of this skit. It was so wonderfully absurd, Dimitri. What gave you that idea? How did that hatch? I think for, for me personally, and I don't think it's that unique as an approach, but when I discovered volume in terms of output, when I allowed myself to come up with a lot of bad ideas, more ideas came out, and then in that pile, I found a higher number of, of ones that worked. And that's true, I think, for sketches when I had the series, certainly for my jokes. I'm working on a book of short stories. It's probably the longest gestation ever for some book of funny stories. But one year, I will finish it. But it's the same thing. I'm always just brainstorming, you know, trying to get those ideas. And so that sketch, 
I don't even remember, but it's usually the same process for me. And it's pretty boring, but it's really just me with a notebook or the typewriter or whatever, sometimes even dictating into my phone. But it's just getting out and getting down as many ideas as possible, no matter what they are. If it's an idea for a drawing, fine. If that's what arrived, capture it, write it down. And there's last year's champion, John Benjamin. He's called Not A Big Deal Ben because he always says it's not a big deal if you don't pay him back. But when he gets home, he beats his dog angrily. There's Michael Newman. The secret to his success, an incredibly small heart. In the number two position is John Mullaney. They call him the Cincinnati quiet ass. Eric Drysdale's warming up. He recently cheated on his fiancée with a girl he wasn't even attracted to, just so he wouldn't have to get married. Next to him is Dimitri Martin. He's known for the shitty little notes he leaves for his roommate instead of confronting him directly. And, of course, the newcomer, Kenya's Bimwala Mambutu, the first person in Kenya to break up with his girlfriend via email. What a... And that one, probably also inspired by, by like, Monty Python. You know, I, I, I can't say it's like Python so much. I wouldn't give myself that much credit. But, but I, re- I love the absurdity of, of Python and certain influences like that. Mm. Who are some other earlier comics or, or comedic styles you admire? Well, I've mentioned him many times because it's the truth. And Stephen Wright, one-liner comedian, was, I remember, being such an important influence for me really just such a great joke writer and to me such an original voice in comedy. So Stephen Wright for me was a way in. I'd say Stephen Wright and Gary Larson, the Far Side cartoons. I grew up in suburban New Jersey, the Jersey Shore, which is not really known for its high output of great artists or anything. And it's not, at least where where I was, it was very like team sports oriented you could say obsessed whatever it was wasn't for me but i found my little portals to what was more for me the first couple being probably stephen wright and gary larson later when i got into comedy and learned more about comedy and comedians and comedy writing then people like steve martin andy kaufman ellen degeneres her her early some of that stuff that she did on the tonight show you know Paula Poundstone, I always thought was such a great joke writer. There, the list, there's a lot of them, and a lot of them would be probably from the 70s and 80s, which you know places me as a kid looking at that stuff. Were there any other episodes or sketches that stand out from others you did on important things? I mentioned the 800 meter passive aggressive race. Are there a couple you were especially proud of creating? Yeah, it's sometimes I forget about them, and it's for me it's a good lesson because the show felt so important at the time, and I thought it was, oh boy, this is make or break for me. And it's incredible now, of course. It hasn't been that long, and most people would have never heard of it. And even probably me, the person who cared the most about it, forgets a lot of it. There was one that I liked where there was a, a kid who's writing his, his college admissions essay, or it's it's like... If, in his application form, he writes this, you know, essay, personal statement. If you could have dinner with any three people from history, you know, who would they be? And so I think we called it Dinner with Heroes. And this guy, this kid, he, he picks Benjamin Franklin, William Shakespeare, and Galileo Galilei. And while he's writing his essay, 
a bolt of lightning strikes his house and goes through his down the wires through his computer <laughs> and somehow he's transported to a TGI Fridays with the three heroes in the flesh and he's having dinner with them and it's John Oliver as William Shakespeare H John Benjamin is Benjamin Franklin and and me is Galileo and this was 2009 I think around there but the sketch was it turns out these guys are just leches they're obsessed with the waitress and they're just hitting on her and saying rude things and they're just being real sort of dirtbags about it so it's I, I think Franklin I definitely they, had that right is that right okay so there we go yeah. and then and then just to see each of my friends John Oliver and Benjamin as we call them just to see their improvisations and takes on the, on their characters the choices they were making it just was a very fun day for me it really made me laugh that was a good memory Mr. Franklin Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's do that. Sure. Let's do the questions. Can you tell me a little bit? Uh, you guys all ready to order? You need another minute. Hello. Well, I'm ready now. I, I think we are, too. Let's do this. Let's do this thing. Um, yeah. <clears throat> pray, tell me, uh, might you be on this menu? <laughs> <laughs> nope. Shame, because uh, I'd order that. Uh, no, I would take the chicken fajitas. Hot. Spicy. Shakespeare taking it south of the border. <laughs> Napoli. Okay, and for you, sir? What would you recommend, Kathy? Uh, the burger's good. I love a big, juicy burger, huh? I'm not gonna lie. Mm. Does that burger come with warm buns? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'd be nice. Then a seltzer. And for you, sir? I'm gonna have a tuna club, uh, jalapeno papas, and uh, iced tea. Okay, and for you? And I'll, I'll just have water. <laughs> Kids on a diet. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, guys. Thank you. There you go. Thank you, Kathy. Okay. Oh, 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 that is the perfect gentleman. Boinga da boinga. All right. <laughs> Pure poetry. There were a lot of good memories and a lot of, I, I did have a lot of fun. I, I think I'm hard on myself because I, I feel like I was so uptight and worried about the show and everything and trying to figure it out. But when I think back to like that sketch and this, probably five or six others that if I could go through the list and say, oh yeah, that, that was a really fun one. I think that joke worked the way I hoped it would. For those who haven't seen the Cartoon Network animated series, We Bear Bears, how would you describe it? Well, I'd say it's there's a sweetness to the show that, that I appreciate, that I like to be part of. But it's these three bears who are, uh, there's a grizzly bear, a, a polar bear, and a panda. And they, they live together in sort of a house. I guess it's like a, yeah, it's like a house cave sort of thing but it's I, I describe it as sort of sweet and playful I think you could say sort of non-snarky comedy for kids and I do think some adults like it too but that's one thing that I that I like about it for sure is that you know you can think about things works of art or creative works I guess you call them on different spectra right would that be the plural of spectrum did I do that right but, you know, you can think of them on different sort of scales or something. And sometimes I think about comedy on the, the snarkiness scale because I did notice a lot of the stuff I liked when I was little, and it's probably because I was little, a lot of it wasn't that snarky. The comedy, it was funny, but it wasn't, I don't know, it wasn't so mean. And um, I think that became harder to find for a while. I don't know. I've lost touch a bit now. I don't know what the latest comedy trends are, but... 
but you know what I mean? It just felt like a, it was a different world, of course. And this is an older guy talking now. But sometimes when I find things that aren't so snarky, especially as a dad now, I really I, I appreciate it. Do your kids watch the show? They've seen it. They've seen a few episodes, but it's going to sound stupid. But we don't have I think maybe it's on the streaming services now, but I didn't I don't have cable. I didn't I didn't have Cartoon Network, so I, we never really saw it. But I I would see clips and I thought, hey, I like the way that came together. You know, seems good. And do your kids know about Isaac and Ice Bear? Yes, mostly from their friends because now they're in school <laughs> and people are like, hey, your dad is your dad Ice Bear? I'd say, yeah. And the 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 gifts they'd give me from the show, which would be like a stuffed ice bear. Aww. And then they say, oh, this is you, you know. And now they're they're a little bit older, so they're more familiar with it and all that. It's been kind of cool because our kids are still young enough that we're not out of control. Uh, you know, we can, we can sort of control the media diet. And it's not like we're on a farm or trying to keep them isolated or anything like that. But not that, not thinking against people on farms. I know everything's interconnected and people on farms do have high speed internet and stuff but more i was thinking more of like a little house on the prairie thing we're not doing like a retro they can't look at media but we're sort of slowly introducing stuff i'm still amazed that like there are young kids who can watch stuff that i think would give me nightmares but i hear about some of the other kids from school who what they're watching and what they can i'm like wow you got like a six-year-old watching it Mm. it's intense how old are your kids? I don't even know. <laughs> well, I, th- I think <laughs> Summer and I were talking. Was one of your children born in 2016? <laughs> yes, yes. They're okay. eight and oh, six. Sweet ages. Yeah. Still, they still like me and still think I'm cool mostly. So, that's, <laughs> so I'm enjoying that. I'm, I'm aware that that will change probably pretty soon, so. To your point about sweet or non-snarky humor, I think that's something that your fans, that those who admire your work appreciate in you, Dimitri. And, And I wonder if you would welcome or mind the description of your work as gentle humor. No, I think I take that as a compliment. The older I get, the more I feel like I understand that a fulfilling creative job or career probably has a lot to do with being authentic, at least for someone like me. So if I can understand what I have to offer, that's truest to maybe what I am or how I've sort of come together as a person, then I feel like I'm on the right track. And I think it's interesting for for anybody who makes content, and it feels like there are more and more people who do these days, it's interesting to think about the difference between what you might want to be, but maybe what you sort of more naturally are. I don't think the latter is unchangeable, but it does feel like there's a maybe a natural shape to a person's work. And you can go outside of it or fight it. You can try to be like someone else. You can work hard to be a different version of what you want to be or whatever. But when it's when it's aligned, it, it does, there's a certain feeling, I think. So I do think I end up in sort of the gentle territory. 
you know, I, I don't think I'm the gentlest person in the world or the sweetest person, and I certainly curse a lot. You know, it's, it's none of that. I don't think I'm necessarily like a clean comedian or any of that stuff. But like I said, I, I've tried to do dirty stuff. I've tried to do edgier stuff. If I get angry on stage, it's not funny. Like, I'm just not one of those guys. Like, for me, it's it's more what I en- have ended up doing, and I do think the crowd I get is a reflection of that. Mm. That's sort of the signal I send out to those people, and they find me. So we talked about the guitar. You mentioned making a drawing. You have been known to bring an easel on stage with cartoon drawings. Will there be any props on this stand-up tour (laughs) yeah there's the there's the easel i have that (laughs) and trying to think i you know i'm always trying different things and a lot of them will appear for some shows and if it doesn't work then that goes away or maybe it comes back later but some of those things that people have seen me do i i have those things and i'm trying some other things with like sound some little sound cue stuff yeah for me the whole game is just how can i present jokes in different ways i get a comedic idea and it can work it can work as a one-liner or as part of a story. It could work as dialogue in a scene. Maybe it's part of a list piece, right? It could be lyrics in a song or something. So it's kind of fun to take an idea and see what form it works best in. And, you know, in case you didn't know, there's there's a real code, I guess, in stand-up. Or you could say sometimes people can be real snobs about it and say, oh, you can't have props and ugh. A song parody. What ha- you know? I don't have any song parodies yet. But if I wanted to, if I wrote one, then great, I'll do it. But there are there are those who who scoff at like anything that's not purely, you know, you got to just have a microphone and a brick wall. You know, tough guy comedy, which is fine. I've done plenty of that. I'm, I'm, I'm saying I was tough, but I've done that. <laughs> I've, I've done those rooms. I've done I've done it with those constraints. But I also like I, I like to be sort of experimental and playful with it. Comedian Dimitri Martin, from our conversation last July, he'll perform at the Georgia Theater in Athens on February 11th. And more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, our series Speaking of Art Today features multimedia artist David Batterman. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. It's time now for our series, Speaking of Art, where we hear from local visual artists in their own words. Hi, my name is David Batterman. I am a multimedia artist. My uh, work ranges from photography and collage to video and music, but uh, primarily my visual work, I focus on collage. I utilize a lot of commercial imagery from vintage sources paired with machinery or a technical source material to kind of talk about the way that consumerism and militarism evoke automatic reactions in us and how these systems are kind of revered in an almost perversely 
a holy way. A lot of the figures in my work have heads that are bomber engines or vintage hair dryers, carburetors, car parts, that sort of thing. And the backgrounds might be from old NASA blueprints or layers of mid-century imagery. And I try to contextualize them using the underlying compositions of uh, religious iconography. As far as uh, how I got started in art, um, I've always drawn or created. I mean, ever since I could remember, I came from an Air Force family, so I spent a lot of time in those installations just kind of drawing away. I was really fascinated with the industrial aesthetics of equipment and planes and stuff like that. And um, when I graduated high school, I wanted to be a writer or perhaps an English professor, but I turned to art after a couple years. I got my degree in photography from Georgia State in the late 90s, and I did that and graphic design professionally until I got my master's in 2015 and became an art teacher for Fulton County. And I guess in grad school is really when I really started embracing collage and starting to do more of that. As far as inspiration goes, I'm inspired by lots of things. Leafing through old issues of Life or Argosy, 1950s, mechanic trade magazines, old public safety or training or Department of Defense films, but also by current events, politics, and of course, you know, seeing other people's work, we have the ability to be exposed to so much new art through the web and social media, and it's really, I feel like, a unique time in the art world in that way. As a high school art teacher, though, I'm also really inspired by my students, seeing them discover their own artistic voices. And, you know, in turn, I also uh, want to stay current with what's going on so I can give them contemporary examples and show them that art isn't uh, a bunch of old, dead, famous people, but something that's happening right now. Uh, I grew up in Macon but I've been in Atlanta for almost 30 years. Uh, and there's just so much about this place to love. The, the music scene is brilliant, the visual arts, our festivals, the million little subcultures we have here, all the scrappy little DIY venues and, and galleries. There's been so much change since I moved here in the mid-90s. A lot of the really great institutions are going or have already long gone. And that's kind of sad. Um, you know, we've been priced out of the city proper for years now. But Atlanta always seems to kind of reinvent the good stuff in a new place. Places like Day and Night Projects, Mint Gallery, Jackson Fine Art, ABV Gallery, Atlanta Contemporary, Mocha Georgia, the N Project Space, iDrum, White Space. I mean, I could go on and on. And of course, having great local sites like Burnaway is also a great help in finding good places to go and see new work. You can see my work at davidwbatterman.com. And my Insta is, is at davidwbatterman as well. And right now I'm, I'm actually currently laying out a 10-year retrospective art book of my collage work. Uh, that's going to be available this spring as well. 
multimedia artist David Batterman and our series, Speaking of Art. More information about Batterman, as well as our entire Speaking of series, is on our website, wabe.org slash speaking of. Finally today, a message for one of our recent donors. Happy birthday, Becky Denton. We appreciate your being part of our City Lights community. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about Mambo Zombie and learn how the new theme bar takes inspiration from celebrations of life and the afterlife. If you missed part of today's show, like my earlier conversation with the artist Thelonious Stokes, you could catch up through our podcast or on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find a complete archive of our stories so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at wabe.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. The world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E.